today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell your friends and subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Hamilton gets the Grey Cup. Not the next one or that one, but the one after that. The latest on the Justin and Jody Show. Stay tuned. And the National Energy Board has approved the Trans Mountain Pipeline, but will it get built? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Great news. The Grey Cup going to be held in Hamilton, not in 2020, but 2021. Gives us another year to plan. Uh, The city says it's going to spend about $1.7 million as part of the hosting celebration to talk about all of this and what it means to our city from a tourism perspective. Sharon Murphy is with us, Acting Manager, Tourism and Events, Tourism and Culture, City of Hamilton, and with us now. Sharon, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Thrilled to be on air with you. So, obviously, this is great news for your office. Yes, very, very great news. Uh, the fact that it is 2021, or sorry, 2021 instead of 2020, does that matter as long as we get it in the next year or two? At least now you have confirmation of when it is. We are thrilled that it is coming to, to Hamilton in 2021. Um, it, as Bob Young has been saying, it gives us more time to plan, strategically plan, and to really execute the fabulous bid that the Hamilton Tiger Cats put forth to the CFL. So uh, they're talking about 30 to $35 million uh, coming into the city. Give us an idea where that comes from, uh, how it gets spent, and, 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 and how the revenue streams into the city from this event. Wonderful. Yes, I will. Um, well, from all of our tourism sectors, such as hotels, transportation, restaurant, facilities, and, and venues, uh, the economic spin will take place in, in, in those areas. Uh, for, so, for example, we have close to 6,000 room nights on hold in the city of Hamilton throughout the course of the week. Um, the restaurants, of course, will be buzzing throughout the, throughout the entire city. It's not just situated in one area of the city. It's going to be everywhere throughout the city, which is wonderful. Uh, transportation, so, you know, uh, via transportation of, of via rail, go transit. Um, our airport, of course, will be uh, a welcome hub for many uh, travelers coming coming to the game uh, from across the country. So, uh, you know, the, the spin-offs there are tremendous. Then you go further into it and you talk about transportation in addition to this, as well as our taxi cab companies, Uber, um, that need the transportation around the city to get them to and from all the festivities. And then furthermore, you go deeper and deeper into things. So then you know you're talking about VIP gifts. You're talking about um, local suppliers that will benefit mm. from it, florists that will benefit from it for the awards show. So it, the spinoff is tremendous when, when an event of this nature comes into the community. Uh, there was chatter a while ago about how hotel space and how that was a concern in this city. Give us an update on that. Are we, are we where we need to be? Yes, we are definitely where we need to be, which is wonderful. Um, so our hotel partners have come on very, very strong for the 2021 Grey Cup. Um, we have three hotels that are going to be slated to op- be opened by 2021, in addition to the inventory that we have on hand right now. So there's a new Hyatt that is supposed to be opening in 2019 at some point. Um, in 2020, we also have two more properties, in the down- one in the downtown core, and one on Upper James near the Courtyard by Marriott. So we will serve the complement of guest rooms that are required by the CFL and that, that have been dictated by the CFL. Um, uh, when will you start to see this? When will you start to see uh, the effect of this? I mean, is it still too early for that? Is it still too much in the planning stages? But when will you start to see that? Considering, you know, it's now pretty much firmed up. I guess we don't have an exact date yet, but... No, we haven't have the confirmed date yet. We have an idea of the date. Um, so we're exactly 33 months out, if you want to know. And we've done, we started a kick down, uh, sorry, um, uh, a countdown here at Tourism Hamilton. And it's 1,001 days exactly, we're estimating, uh, to the official kickoff. And from a, from a tourism perspective, um, like all space has been placed on hold, including many of the venues in the city, throughout the city, uh, for various festivities. Um, in terms of when will things be starting, we anticipate you know, meeting and speaking with the Hamilton Tiger Cats uh, in the coming weeks, uh, kind of getting where their thoughts are and how they want to start um, the whole process of Grey Cup, uh, which is wonderful. 
And on, a, on another note, we've already received inquiries for people that are looking for guest room com- accommodations for the 109th Great Cup in Hamilton for 2021. Oh, that's yeah. incredible. That's incredible. Our phone, our, our phone has been ringing like crazy today. So it's wonderful. So yeah. what is the biggest challenge as you move forward towards this date? Um, I, I, I don't think I, I don't think it would be a challenge at all. Um, I think we're just so excited to have this wonderful event returned to our city after a 25-year absence. Um, you know, our city has changed so much in 25 years. Um, the, the, the stadium will be ready to host a Grey Cup. Um, and, I, and I just think that um, the Hamilton Tiger Cats have such a dynamic team of both on-field and behind-the-scenes off-field um, that they, they, they put together a tremendous bid that uh, I know all Hamiltonians will be very proud of, of, of what happens in the city in uh, November of 2021. From a tourism perspective, what can you use this for? What, what, what do you hope to take from this uh, in the time leading up to it and after the event? What, what will this do for your office? Well, I mean, it is, it, it is the, you know, the largest sporting event a one-day event to ever uh, come to, to a, a municipality, which is fabulous in itself. The media exposure alone will be tremendous. Um, it elevates us in the eyes of other events um, that all eyes will be on Hamilton to see what our hosting capabilities are. Um, Hamilton is very well known amongst many associations of our hosting capabilities, and, and uh, the difference of be going to a larger municipality where you could get lost in the shuffle, when you come to Hamilton with such a large event, you basically take over the entire city. So we, we are very good hosts at, at what we do, and, and, our, and all of our hospitality sector are very, very good at what they do, and, and we know that we're going to have the best Grey Cup ever. Uh, is this too much time to plan for such an event? Uh, will people be expecting too much considering, well, you've had two years to plan this. Come on, come on, let's get going here. I mean, it's, uh, it, 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 how much of an advantage is it to get a two-year-out date? Uh, it's fantastic, actually. Um, so, um, for example, we just recently in 2018 hosted the Canadian Country Music Awards, and the bid process on that started two years in advance. Um, we were formally awarded it in February of 2017. So we had roughly, I don't know, 18 months to, to plan it, and that was absolutely perfect. Something of this magnitude, which is, you know, two to three times larger, having over two years to plan is, is just so much better from, from, from a municipality standpoint and staffing resources, of course. Is this all about downtown? Is it about the restaurants and, 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 and the nightlife that has now, uh, uh, you, you know, taken off in, in downtown Hamilton and the way the core has developed? Or will there be festivities all over the place? Do you have any of that thought out yet? Yeah, our, our, our wish is that festivities will be throughout the entire city. Um, you know, we will be working closely with all the different uh, business um, improvement areas throughout the city, um, as well as many of our, our city of Hamilton uh, staff um, <clears throat> for, you know, transportation services and public services and public works and, um, you know, municipal parking to make sure that people can get in and out of the downtown core if that's where certain events are taking place or throughout, you know, the stadium area. So our wish is that this event, much like our other events have, have, you know, trickled out into the outside of the downtown core as well. So what about, uh, this is happening in 2021, Uh, where will we be considering all things keep moving with LRT on this? How concerned are you about that, especially if there's construction? LRT is always on our radar. Um, We have been dialoguing very closely with the LRT office, so they've been made very well aware of of, you know, who we are pursuing from a tourism perspective, when are the proposed dates, and so forth. Um, I know that, you know, right now, uh, the LRT is working on, on getting their ducks in order, of course, for, for tender. Um, so it is on our radar. Uh, CFL, as well as the, as the Hamilton Tiger Cats, have been made aware of this, this project. And I, I believe wholeheartedly that all parties can work together on this construction. 
The fact that this is coming two years out, uh, boy, that certainly does give lots of planning if you are a business in that area. If you anticipate, now I'm sure you're not going to base your business just on one event that comes to the city, but it certainly does look positive uh, over the next few years for the city of Hamilton, doesn't it? Yes, for sure. So, for example, this year we're hosting the RBC Canadian Open in June. We're very excited about that. Uh, That will be at the Hamilton Golf and Country Club. So all of our, our... Tourism sectors and hospitality sectors have all been brought into the fold of this this wonderful event that's coming to our community. In 2020, we have the return of the Canadian Country Music Awards again in September of 2020, and we're we're delighted to bring that event back to the city. And again, that was a whole citywide event. And then, of course, 2021, now we have the the 109th Grey Cup coming in. So we have a lot on the plate and a lot that we're still looking at and pursuing. So I don't think this is going to be the only announcement coming in the next few months or so. We're very excited about that, too. What what can you learn from other cities that are uh, good at this? I mean, some are better, certainly better at it than others, uh, specifically out west. Do you you chat with other cities on on what works, what doesn't work, and, and how to move this forward? We have very good relationships with other uh, destination marketing organizations across the country. Um, so, for example, our, our friends and colleagues in Calgary are hosting this year's Grey Cup, and we have been dialoguing with them over the past year or so regarding a Grey Cup and, you know, what does it take and learning from them and so forth. Um, there are municipalities that do an exceptional job of executing. Um, their marketplaces, you know, is different from, from Hamilton's. Um, yeah. But we certainly do learn a lot from other cities, and we complement their work. We might plagiarize what they do, um, but there are areas that we certainly can do it probably better. Uh, By the time the Grey Cup gets here, it'll be like 25 years since it has been here. Do you play that up or down? I'd like to play it up a bit um, with our marketing endeavors. I think it's important. Um, You know, it's going to be very historic. Uh, well, hopefully it won't be a snowball like it was in 1996. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we all remember um, that. <laughs> everybody remembers that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's been 25 years in the making. Uh, you know, Bob Young and, and his tremendous crew. Um, you know, we have a new stadium. we got a tremendous team. we got a Grey Cup coming, and now his wish is to bring the Grey Cup to Hamilton. So the official Cup be winners. So that's so it's fantastic. Also, when you look back 25 years ago or 24 years ago to 1996, different league, different health of the league uh, and the game back then, it's amazing how far they've come in that uh, period. So, it, you know, obviously we're anticipating a lot more this time out than, the, than, than that time. Yeah. And I mean, for, for, for yourself, for those listeners that have never been to a Hamilton Tiger Cat game, I sincerely wish you, you that you do partake in, in games throughout the season because... They, they just do a bang-up job with making it very experiential for every single person, every ticket holder in, in that stadium. So. And that's the other thing, too. I mean, as you come up to this event uh, two years away, I mean, this is going to be great for the Ticat organization. This is just going to generate more interest in the stadium, more interest in people showing up as, as this big event draws closer. Exactly. So it's a, it's a win-win for everyone. And, you know, those, those new ticket holders that are coming from outside of Hamilton to, mm. to come and see the Hamilton Tiger Cats, that's direct visitor spend into our community. So they're going to be coming in, you know, to stay overnight, experience our restaurants, need transportation. So that's all economic spinoff because of this event leading up to Grey Cup. You know, it's amazing when we started doing uh, uh, broadcasts in and around uh, what's happening with uh, with tourism, Hamilton and such. Yes. Uh, everybody was asking, tourism, what's that got to do with Hamilton? It's amazing how things have changed over the last couple of decades, isn't it, Sean? Oh, it's, 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 it's just wonderful, and, and we see it growing, and it's growing at a very nice pace, mm. um, which makes it very manageable. Um, and allows us to really strategically think of what we're going to be pursuing and trying to bring into the city of Hamilton. So, uh, you know, we just don't throw everything out there and bid on everything that we possibly can. We, we were very strategic in our thinking and how we, how we put our best foot forward. Sharon Murphy's been with us, Acting Manager, Tourism and Events, Tourism and Culture, City of Hamilton, uh, the Grey Cup, coming here in 2021. And Sharon and gang will be ready. Sharon, thanks so much for the time and insight. Good luck with this. Thank you so much, Scott. Look forward to speaking with you again. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Speaking of uh, the government and Ottawa, it has been quite a week in Ottawa, even though uh, 
you know, it's uh, it's been a short one, but awfully long for some there. Uh, Jody Wilson Raybould has uh, has had an interesting week. Is she the most powerful woman in Ottawa right now? Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman Summa Strategy, uh, Summa Strategies, has served as advisor to national party leaders and cabinet ministers, and is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Good to be here, Scott, and I think the answer to the question you just posed is yes. Uh, I've honestly never seen um, anything quite like this before where somebody has left cabinet uh, on their own accord, likely, that appears to be what has happened, and has been able to call the tune of the government's uh, response and action and have them hopping all over the place. Uh, hopefully next week, Ms. Wilson-Rabel will be able to speak. This whole issue of solicitor-client privilege should, I hope, uh, will be, they'll have found a solution that will be waived at that point in time. But she looks in charge, uh, and Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, was looking like a bit of a deer in the headlights. The headlights may be dimming, but uh, there's still some traffic coming at him for sure. Uh, it was odd, too, with the apology speaking up for, uh, for on her behalf for some of the criticism that she was getting, and it, which I, I think is bizarre because the only criticism I'm thinking she was getting was from all liberals that she was being a thorn in the side of the government. I, I think she had the support of the majority of the country, no? Yeah, I, I mean, certainly I've seen some data that suggested she has been uh, more believable than the government, and I, I think the government has fallen all over itself trying to find a way out of this because they're feeling the heat. Uh, the prime minister lost his good friend and uh, uh, private secretary, um, uh, Jerry Butts. Jerry Butts wouldn't have left the government, I don't think, if they didn't realize that uh, this is a storm that has made, could have major consequences for them. Um, but it really is fascinating. You know, the, the prime minister, as you said, I believe it was Tuesday or Wednesday, what are we, Friday now, had come out of the caucus meeting, so it would have been Wednesday, and say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I've expressed my apologies to uh, Jody Wilson-Rabel. I, I should have spoken up earlier about the way she was being treated, the editorial cartoons and the, uh, the abuse effectively she'd been subject to. Then again, the next day was back going at her again, saying he found this whole uh, episode of her stepping down. He still didn't understand it. It didn't make sense. It looked like he was, uh, again, going after her. And then today, in my hometown of St. John's, Newfoundland, they, they seem to be adopting this new line as, a, as one that they may stay with for a few days, that, look, uh, pay attention to the clerk, what he said yesterday. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in a moment, Mr. Wernick. And, you know, jobs matter. Governments need to stand up for jobs, and that's what we are trying to do. Where was that two weeks ago? Yeah, especially when it comes to balancing with rule of law. Yes, which was the other the other comment that he made. I mean, speaking of Michael Wernick, it, as I'm sure you've reported, he, uh, he testified yesterday at the Justice Committee, the same one Miss Wilson-Rabel is going to appear at next week. Uh, he is the most senior, powerful, non-elected government official in the country. He's the clerk of the Privy Council, so that means he runs the public service. He's also a counselor to the prime minister. He's his deputy minister. Uh, I mean, his testimony yesterday, he acknowledged that, uh, and, and this is where the debate is, that Mrs. Miss Wilson-Rabel would have felt pressure, uh, which is effectively what the Golden Mail has been, sa has been saying about her. But he believes, and this is why the prime minister is referring people to his testimony, that it was appropriate uh, given what was at stake. Um, Boy, that's a, that's, a, that's a lot to put on the shoulders of one person. Uh, clearly, this depends on the definition of pressure, I guess. Well, and he, just look at the dates, okay? This is, and again, we, we can all decide for ourselves if, if the, the pressure was appropriate or, or not appropriate. So dates that are not in dispute. Perhaps the first and most key one. On September 4th, the Director of Public Prosecutions decided that SNC-Lavalin were not eligible for this form of remediation known as a Deferred Prosecution Agreement. So that was decided. That is not in dispute by anybody. So fast forward 
two weeks later, just shy of two weeks later, the Prime Minister, as confirmed by Mr. Wernick, met, and by the Prime Minister, met with Jody Wilson-Raybould on September 17th and spoke about this issue and spoke about, apparently, uh, the, the notion that this was an important thing. But guess what? It's your decision, Miss Wilson-Raybould. Now, when your boss tells you it's your decision, mm. I don't know, people would probably think, yeah, is it really my decision? Yeah. That The pressure didn't stop there. By uh, Mr. Wernick's own admission, there were meetings in December. He called her, I think it was on the 18th of December, uh, to or the 19th of December to speak to her about this issue. He said, and I'm using his words, that there were people who were very anxious about this. Uh, apparently there was a conversation on the 18th of December between Miss Wilson-Rabel's chief of staff and the prime minister's office. They apparently were expressing the same thing. Again, this was done. The deal was done three months beforehand. Three months later, you're having this not-so-aggressive um, pressure. As after the, the decision is happening. After the suggestion and the def- after the decision really has already been made. Right. So, I mean, how else are you supposed to interpret that? Uh, you know, the, as I say, when the clerk calls a cabinet minister to say, you need to think about this, that's not a call you just... Uh, you know, hang up after you've had uh, like one from a telemarketer saying, "Hey, I got this to sell you. Thanks, bye." That's a call you think about. That's so, a call that sticks uh, in your head again, over and over. Whether you know, you know, you want to uh, debate the definition of pressure, it still does not explain why he fired her as attorney general. Exactly, and they have this lame uh, rationale, and it's hard not to say it's lame and and. It, be in, to have any other term for it. Oh, well, we tra- changed her because Scott Bryson resigned. Yeah. Okay, well, Scott Bryson was a minister in the Treasury Board. Yes, uh, you can make, you know, you, 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 could, uh, you, you could shuffle the cabinet accordingly. You had to shuffle the cabinet. That's not in dispute. But who said you had to move Jude, Jody Wilson-Rabel out of justice to Veterans exactly. Affairs just because Scott Bryson stepped out? You know, she didn't go into Treasury Board. She didn't take that particular job. I mean, I think it's a weak argument that they're mounting here. And as Scott Bryson's husband joked on Twitter, uh, well, I blame Scott for everything, too. You you (laughs) as a Scott probably get blamed for everything, too, as well. Should, um, uh, Should she have to explain why she didn't speak up earlier? Some have been saying, well, if she had her chance to speak up, she thought she was being pressured, she should have said something. Yeah, I think that's a fair argument uh, against her rationale, and I think that's where the government believes the weak link in whatever her position is going to be is. Uh, but I'm not sure that it's going to be the the moment that undoes the knot that the liberals find themselves in. I Look, I, any of us could also make this argument that, you know what, I'm trying to be a good team player. I was trying to do the best that I could. I didn't want, you know, I wanted to take time. I wanted to reflect on things. um, And I didn't think the environment existed for me to speak up. We've all heard that. We've all seen people or been in those circumstances ourselves where we want to be a good team player. We want to be part of the organization. uh, And sometimes keeping your mouth shut and working through it is is how you manage it. And, and, and again, I think she'd find that there's some audience out there for that message. All right, so let's, uh, let's move to uh, what the clerk of the Privy Council said. Um, is this him basically coming out and saying, and discrediting, discrediting her and saying, you know, there's no reason for her to have felt pressure. Um, is, that, is that the Liberal government uh, trying to soften us, cushion us from what... Uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould is actually going to say. So she is going to come out yep. and say, I felt pressure. But is that going to matter if you got guys like this standing up and going, oh, this is the way we do business. No, is she feeling pressure for? It's a boy's game. She can't take it. What is she, you know, I, yep. I, I don't understand how this will help them in their narrative. Well, you nailed it there. You have men saying this. You have the most senior government official, unelected government official. You have the prime minister. Uh guys mansplaining to a now almost iconic figure that hey hey come on uh, if you felt it you should have said something to us what's wrong with you yeah. type of, of approach i don't it, it doesn't seem to be playing well 
and I think that was their concern. That's that's why uh, Trudeau originally apologized this week because again, there the prime minister's voting coalition gets a lot of support from different female voting cohorts, and I think women more particularly, but not just women, can perhaps empathize with, at, at a lesser degree, but nonetheless, empathize with maybe what Jody Wilson-Raybould was, was trying to manage. And I don't think they're doing a very good job at discrediting her. And so the they're symbolism, trying... Sorry, Scott, I was just going to say this. Yep. And the symbolism of her not being able to speak because they basically control the duct tape that is over her mouth, known as solicitor-client privilege, I think that is really hurting them right now. So they're basically trying to neutralize what they know she is going to say before she says it. Yes, and and and, and set the conditions for it. But you know, I, but they they can't send her into that committee uh, with this solicitor client privilege hanging over her head. They have to find a way. Uh, and and I don't. I realize they're. Or- are arguing, excuse me, precedent. But the longer I think also she stays silent, she grows more powerful. Yeah. Um, while they're trying to neutralize her debate, if they don't let her speak, yes, they'll have their version of the truth out there, but it will continue to look like they don't want her to speak. And uh, that is more damaging than if she did speak, I would say. And Michael Wernick went on to say that there is no reason why she can't speak. What does that mean? Well, it means the government's talking out of many mouths, as we have seen, right? The the opposition hasn't put this mess at their foot. The the media, I guess you can say the Globe created this story, but the Globe just reported on, on the information that it was given. The government continues to go all over the place on what they should do with this. I mean, I don't know how, uh, you know, Michael Wernick is not helping the government or justice officials who report to him by saying that, no, no, she can speak, because the Department of Justice, again, which he technically, well, he does oversee it as clerk of the Privy Council, is saying that's not the case. It's, uh, it's, it, it, Everybody, uh, it, it, it's spectacularly messy. Uh, uh, Michael Wernick also went on to discredit the Globe and Mail article, saying that it wasn't factual. Um, will will the public view this as someone uh, who's powerful, a powerful civil servant trying to stick up for the government? I think that's what's happening. And again, that's not what is supposed to happen. Yeah. Michael Wernick, to his credit, has long been known as a professional public servant. He served in, as a deputy minister and an associate secretary of cabinet. So in, how do we explain his reaction to this? If he's such, if yeah, he's I know, such well it, respected. It's totally out of character. If you can describe, you know, what a clerk of the Privy Council is, is supposed to be kind of like your wise, sage, grandfather or grandmother. They've been around, they've seen everything, and they speak very um, neutrally about positions. They speak to the facts, not the politics. They don't offer, you know, strongly held opinions like Mr. Wernick appeared to offer yesterday. The theory around here is that Mr. Wernick, and it's likely true, is um, because he is near this age, is nearing retirement, and he felt he would use this opportunity to to speak in in a manner that clerks don't usually speak to the public in. Uh, what about his comments in regard that he's worried that someone's going to get shot during the next federal election campaign? Is this something that a man of his stature should be saying to the media? No. Um, I mean, uh, he may not be wrong in that, but I hope he's wrong in that. I mean, certainly the political climate has intensified, but again... Many said, that during, that. Many, many said that during the Barack Obama era. Yeah. Uh, fair point. Uh, but again, somebody of his stature is supposed to be a calming force, uh, a, a force that is looking forward. I mean, Mr. Wernick is on that task force. He's the head of it that the government announced a few weeks ago to uh, oversee and, and try and uh, prevent uh, foreign influence in the election campaign. I mean, it was a useful distraction because now you and I are talking about it. It's moved us away from the central conversation of what really happened or didn't happen to Judy Wilson-Rabel. So, you know, again, I'm not sure why he decided to throw that in there at that point. Is this up there with blaming Scott Bryson 
is, is this situation <laughs> is is this going to make people just shake their heads? Well, again, I think part of it, that that's it, right? I think part of what different people who don't view anything wrong having transpired or trying to do is throw out so many different bits and pieces of ideas or 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 their version of the truth or thoughts, random thoughts that they have in hopes that your listeners and, and, and other people who uh, maybe have been paying attention to say, oh, it's just Ottawa. This is just the way it works. Let, let's move on from here. That's often a strategy governments of all stripes will use. Just throw out all sorts of bits and pieces of, of information, and it'll get so overwhelming at a certain point, people just move on from it and say, well, we're never going to really know what happens here. Are we surprised? Where does this leave uh, the public's view of uh, the Privy Council clerk? Well, I, I think you're kind of scratching your head and saying, if you know anything about the background and you know that a civil servant is supposed to be nonpartisan, I'm not saying Mr. Wernick was partisan, but he certainly was highly opinionated, which some will describe as partisanship. you got to kind of wonder, and now you have, as they say, the Prime Minister in St. John's today saying you need to listen to Michael Wernick. So the Prime Minister is making Michael Wernick uh, yeah. a partisan figure. Hmm. Um, maybe you're you're a little disappointed in Mr. Wernick uh, or confused, or maybe some think that's what he's supposed to do, but it isn't what he's supposed to do. So as you try to process someone who's been around this, <laughs> been around the block a few times here, how do you process what's transpired in the last week? Uh, that is an, uh, that's the best question I've been asked in the last two weeks. Mm. Um, I have never seen anything like this, and I have lived through the days of, you know, Stockwell Day leading the reform part or the uh, alliance and all that happened there, the sponsorship scandal and all the various uh, manifestations of all of that. Uh, I, 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 this is new territory, uh, Scott, in some ways, because, as I say, and you started it at the beginning of this discussion, Jody Wilson-Rabel is largely calling the shots, at least from a communications execution point of view. The government still doesn't know where it's going. And I don't know what the lasting impact, if any, will be on the federal election that's coming. Certainly the government's concerned about it. Finally, I would say this. I don't know if we'll ever know really what happened, but I think I'm waiting to hear, as I'm sure the rest of the public is who are interested in this, what Jody Wilson-Rabel does have to say, and if that leads us any closer to knowing what happened. And I guess the final, final point, if I'm the prime minister, I want to find a way, uh, if messes happen in the future, to manage them in a much more effective way, because I can blame no one but myself and my office for the predicament that I'm in right now. Last question, uh, sorry, what does this mean for SNC-Lavalin and Quebec's love affair with it? Uh, well, I, 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 can the government now, the new Attorney General, Justice Minister, I, I can't see how he can undo uh, the course that has been set. So if he can't undo that and come up with a deferred prosecution agreement, so some form of remediation, then I, I think it's not good news for SNC. I think this scandal, this story, this mess, you pick your descriptor, has not advanced the cause of SNC one bit. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the discussion. Uh, fascinating. Going to be interesting to see what happens next week. Thanks for the time. You are welcome, Scott. Have a good weekend. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The National Energy Board has released its recommendation on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, has basically approved the Trans Mountain Pipeline, although does admit admit that the increased uh, tanker traffic would hurt killer whales uh, and increase greenhouse gases. But considering uh, the side effects, uh, the benefits far outweigh uh, all of that. Now the uh, the government is 90 days uh, to decide what it wants to do in moving forward. Uh, interesting uh, interesting uh, press release just coming out of the Conservative Party of Canada. Shannon Stubbs, the Conservative Shadow Minister for Natural Resources, today released the following statement. Uh, Today's recommendations from the National Energy Board, while positive, does not get us anywhere closer to the pipeline getting built. All it does is put the decision back in the hands of the same Liberal cabinet that failed to start construction in the first place. The bottom line is Justin Trudeau's Liberals cabinet is 
is still months away from making a decision with no timeline for when consultations with First Nations will conclude or when the final uh, final decision on the project will be made. This review process by the National Energy Board was unnecessary and only further delayed the construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. The same evidence, issues and concern from the first review were repeated in the reconsideration. To talk more about all of this, Dan McTagg is with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic and analyst for GasBuddy.com is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, good to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me on a Friday. So is this a good day for Canada? No. No, I think it's uh, same old, same old. I mean, that's nice that the NEB has said they've done their job, but, you know, I've spoken about this before. It's now up to the government to also do the engagement, the federal government, uh, and that's not just the regulatory body here. Much as they've done their work, uh, and we know that you know, behind any decision that's made by the NEB will be yet more protests, yet more attempts to use uh, uh, legal means to uh, prevent this pipeline from taking place. Uh, there is really no intention, uh, and nor is there any re- any political will in Ottawa to proceed with this. We only have to look at the outgoing comment by uh, former Principal Secretary to the Prime Minister, Gerald Butts, who's all about climate change. And uh, so for that reason, uh, it's pretty clear to me that uh, we've bought a $4.5 billion asset uh, to do precisely nothing with it. And, uh, unfortunately, I think that's where we are. I'm not sure we talked about this at, at all, Dan, but it was very odd for uh, Gerald Butts to put climate change in his statement regarding his resignation. Did not that not seem very odd to you? Uh, no, not at all. It, it, did, it did signal, I think, for anybody who really wants to look at what was there, that this government is about that and that only. Yeah, so yeah. whether it means higher taxes coming in, what, 30 uh, 37, 38 days, uh, or whether it means uh, preventing uh, and, and dismantling Canada's oil industry, which was a slip of the tongue the Prime Minister made a couple of years ago. It's already coming into place. It's all the, the ducks are aligned. And of course, the, uh, it's, it's clear to me that uh, the, the, uh, this current government, the Liberal government, is determined to kill Canada's oil industry. Uh, the NEB admitted uh, that this should go through, uh, that the pros outweigh the cons, but did uh, obviously point out situations with the whales and la 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 la. Is this just more ammo for opponents of this? Well, of course it is, and the NDB has no jurisdiction or authority over oceans. Uh, it, it, it can only go as far as where the pipeline terminal ends. Uh, but, you know, when you introduce all sorts of irrelevant factors, uh, which is beyond the scope and its mandate, one would think that the, you know, the, uh, the last line of defense is, in fact, the federal government itself, which also has to engage in meaningful consultation if we assume that the uh, federal court wasn't uh, on a fishing expedition when it struck down the ability to proceed with uh, the building of this pipeline. Uh, at the end of the day, the federal government has no interest in showing no inclination to get off its collective duff and start these negotiations because it's a, it's really a two-pronged. The, the regulator can do their job up to the limits of what they're allowed to regulate, which doesn't include uh, you know, uh, the South uh, Sea uh, you know, Orca uh, uh, pod, it, it in fact uh, has only jurisdiction to a certain point, and the federal government has to really fill in the rest, and it hasn't shown any desire or inclination uh, to, to do anything. So it's clear to me they want this to be punted past the election, uh, but of course uh, it does mean that uh, for yet another delay, and I guess mine not even looking at what the federal government does uh, in October, whether it wins or it loses, I think I'm going to be looking a lot closer to what happens in Alberta come the end of April when there's a new government there. So 90 days to decide. What will they do in the next 90 days? Uh, lots are saying that they're going to punt it again. I mean, how do yeah, you just, how do you justify that? Well, they, because they don't. They, it, to them, it's uh, you know considering that they are for destroying Canada's oil sector uh, and energy sector and you know dismantling it. And of course, you only have their principal secretaries parting shot to prove beyond any doubt what their agenda was the whole damn time. It certainly does that, doesn't it, Dan? Oh, come on. I mean, you know, Scott, this is just beyond uh, a question. There is no doubt in anyone's mind that these guys are just, you know, they're, they're humming along. Uh, they're just trying to do whatever they can to, uh, you know, to rag the puck, to hold on as long as they can. And, of course, the expectation is they were going to win another majority government right up until last week. Uh, that's off. You know, that's really not on uh, in, in the cards anymore. We don't know what's going to happen next October. But in the meantime, I think you're going to have to find that the Western Canadian provinces uh, begin to, uh, you know, be, begin to show uh, uh, their teeth. They're going to have to uh, because it's for them it's do or die, and uh, Canada is going to make a choice between uh, the false narratives of, uh, of of the organizations that are well funded by foreign organizations, 
or whether or not we ha- we want to have uh, our our energy make its way to international markets. Uh, and if we don't do it, I'm sure the Americans would be more than happy to continue increasing their production of oil, which has gone from 5.5 million barrels a day to 12.4 million barrels a day, which will go to 13 million barrels of production a day, and they have no trouble getting pipelines built. It is an absolute disgrace in this country that we allow this to happen, uh, and I don't know if it's because people are brainwashed or because people just don't care, um, but this is definitely going to have an effect on the economic uh, outlook for the country, not to mention the potential for political disintegration between ourselves and the West. Um, 90 days to make the decision, you said, uh, most likely will punt. That being said, 90 days, that takes us to, what, May. Um, boy, you're getting in awful close to election territory. Don't they have to make a call on this either way between May or in October? Yeah, I think by June, uh, the House will rise, won't come back until after the election. So I suspect that they're just going to, you know, just let it go. Um, and they're going to give all sorts of reasons for it, but... Remember, they also have to have their own form of consultation, which they haven't yet begun, as I mentioned earlier. And so, uh, you know, I think the die is cast. It's pretty clear they don't want this to, to proceed. And you and I don't have any trouble with uh, a $4.5 billion asset, which the private sector was prepared to put money for, but uh, now is on the books as part of our debt and deficit. So it's something to think about next time when you have, uh, you're, you're questioning your bank and saying, how come my interest rates are going up? Well, because you've got the federal government buying and spending on everything. We have a budget coming up uh, in a few weeks. I'm sure that's going to be filled with goodies so that Liberals can uh, buy their way into the next election and, of course, have many people out there who are, uh, you know, are, are you know, only willing to uh, say what's in it for me at the same time recognizing that significant damage is done to the most important uh, industry and export industry we have in this country. So, you know, when you see a Canadian dollar uh, trading at, you know, 132 pennies to buy a U.S. dollar, you can uh, trace that lack of... Uh, of purchasing power that you have for every commodity you buy today uh, directly to the fact that we're not able to get our oil to markets and uh, you can have all the wonderful trendy or you know uh, uh, academic discussions about this but uh, our number one asset can't get to market and it's for that reason the Canadian dollar is as weak as it is and it's likely to lead to unintended uh, effects on our bottom line each one and every one of us are struggling a lot harder to make ends meet because our dollar is so damn weak. You don't think they'll have something in play by the spring that says, well, we're doing this, so it's low, it's slowly moving forward. Otherwise, the, opposi- <laughs> the opposition is going to have a heyday with this going into well, the next are, election. Uh, again, you know, the opposition should have had a heyday with this earlier. The fact is there's still uh, many people out there who think that the prime minister is the best person to lead this country, and even though he's led it to disaster. So it says something about the people. Uh, you know, making those kind of decisions that, uh, oh, well, we've got to give him another chance. What to do what? To ruin your country? To put it into financial uh, financial straitjacket? To, you know, see a, a disintegration of the Federation? In 90 days, there will be a new government in Alberta. And uh, it really doesn't matter what Ottawa does. Uh, it's confrontation 101, the likes of which we haven't seen in 40 years. Um, uh, that being said, is there enough votes in Quebec and Ontario to get this, or uh, Quebec East, to get this government uh, uh, re-elected? I, I, I can't see them not uh, going into the next election without something to say on this file. <laughs> well, I mean, the NDP is going to be nowhere next election unless something dramatic should happen. I mean, it's trailing at 12%. That means most seats are gone except for its core of maybe 15 or 16. I was elected in 1993 when they elected nine, uh, 11 members of parliament with 19%, of, 18% of the vote. They're down to 12, 13, and 14, almost single digits. So, you know, it's really left to whoever else wants to fill the gap. And right now, many people are probably going to go to the, vote, the polls, uh, plugging their nose, not realizing the total impact of what it means to give this government, reward this government with another majority. And you don't even have to include what's happened recently with respect to the imbroglio over SNC-Lavalin uh, and uh, what's unfolding day by day, which looks like, a, you know, if it's not a joke, it's a serious train wreck. Uh, Canadians should have picked up on uh, the uh, the damage that uh, this government has wrought on an important sector of our economy, which really maintains our standard of living. So I've said it before, um, if that didn't convince them, this won't convince them either. They're, they're dead set on... Uh, uh, on uh, supporting, you know, socks, sobbing, and selfies. We certainly know how SNC-Lavalin uh, lobbies the government for what it wants. Is it lobbying to keep pipelines out of Canada, especially the Energy East? Would that have been a benefit to them? Uh, well, I mean, I'm sure there would have been an angle for them if they had, uh, if this is part of the parcel of their, you know, their interest. I, I just find it ironic that we are concerned, uh, as we rightly should be, about losing any job in Canada. 
But eight, well, since when is 8,000 potential jobs lost in Quebec any more important than the 110 to 120,000 jobs that have been lost due to federal government dithering in Alberta? Good point. Uh, but as you mentioned, considering where the Liberals are now with the whole, uh, the whole Jody Wilson-Raybould thing and the SNC-Lavalin, uh, the pipeline protest that came through, I mean, are they? do you think they would soften on all of this considering no. they may not have the support they once did? Well, it wouldn't matter on the, uh, you know, really on the green stuff and on the on the file that's designed to destroy Canada's energy sector, uh, its petroleum industry, its oil industry. You always have, uh, you can always get your backup of the Bloc, the Greens, and the NDP who are in league with these guys. So even if they wind up getting a minority government between the bunch of them, this uh, this bad policy continues because Canadians uh, obviously have uh, got this uh, weird sense of reality that uh, uh, these things just don't matter. And I can tell you, as someone who's been in there, uh, someone whose government had to fight hard to get down, whittle down the national debt and to get the economy rolling again. We are whistling past our own collective economic graves because of this kind of nonsense and willingness to, oh, let's set it aside, give them another chance. I, I hear this all the time. It's like I, I leave my, I'm, I'm shaking. I, uh, my head is shaking, thinking that there are people out there who uh, think nothing of the damage these guys have wrought on the Canadian economy. Does the East support the West on any of this? Uh, it, it seems like, you know, even when the when the pipeline convoy came through, uh, you know, people were more interested in, in tying, you know, their, their relationship to, to the yellow vest or whatever. It's like, you, you guys are missing the point. You're, you, these are average, yeah, everyday yeah, Canadians. Yeah. Um, the forest from the trees. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, is there anybody in the East that's getting this? No, I, up until they lose their jobs, up until they realize that uh, we're heading for a recession, uh, unless uh, we see that the government can, governments, provincial and federal, can't afford the social programs we have out there. But... No, I think right now um, there's a wider perception uh, that that does cause me grave concern that the West feels it's truly being, and that is Alberta and Saskatchewan to a lesser extent, Manitoba, are being left out, and uh, their 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 concerns are are being mocked by us here in Ontario and and to a greater extent uh, in Quebec, and that's I think leaving uh, uh, and leading us to uh, uh, political disintegration as a country. I hate to say it, but it's. Uh, it's certainly there, and it's very palpable. And, you know, in many respects, uh, you can't blame them. Uh, you know, if we lost 140,000 jobs uh, or 110,000 jobs, or if we lost 26 uh, GM factories in, in a span of two or three years here in Ontario, there'd be hell to pay, and people would wake up and smarten up. But unfortunately, they're not smart, and they're not waking up. Uh, so where does this go now that it is back in the hot, in the headlines as being a pro, uh, approved? Although, you know, uh, certainly we got to watch for the whales and everything else in there. Um, mm-hmm. Now that this is back in the news and has been approved, is, is that a good sign for the government or is this something that they now have to deal with? Well, I think it's probably not going to serve their timetable very well. They probably thought they could hold on for a few more months and 90 days after this brings us, as you mentioned earlier, into May. So it's an inconvenient timing issue for them. Either they're going to proceed with this or they're not. Um, but I would suspect that the cast of characters who are currently there uh, are definitely committed to uh, undermining Canada's oil sector. And uh, they make no bones of it. And, and their their leader, uh, their Pied Piper, uh, just made it very clear last week in his letter of resignation that uh, this remains his most important uh, objective. It's one thing to talk about climate change, but we also need, know in Canada that's code word for Let's destroy the Canadian oil sector while everyone else is uh, taking advantage of, the, of Canada's uh, vacuum, of its, uh, of its willingness to walk away from this. I mean, heavy oil that we produce has never been in more demand. Saudi Arabia is cutting it off to U.S. Gulf Coast refineries as a way of pointing out that uh, what the U.S. is producing is shale oil. You can't do a whole lot with it other than produce gasoline. The world needs more diesel, more jet fuel that's heavier that uh, shale oil just doesn't do. Uh, we see Venezuela's in trouble, can't produce as much oil. It's The situation there goes from crisis to crisis. Mexico doesn't have the ability to bring in heavy oil. The only solution is Canada, and Canada's decided to allow itself you know, to be led by a small group of people uh, that are determined to destroy and undermine Canada's heavy oil industry. Uh, what are your thoughts, or maybe you haven't heard about this, or, or I'm guessing you may, you probably have, uh, Bill Gates coming out and uh, talking about the challenges of, co- of climate change and, say that, and saying that there's p- people that are manipulating this? I, I, you know, I, I'll leave that to his comments. I think you're going to hear more and more people saying this, uh, this, this situation has got to be put into more serious perspective. We can't just accept things and uh, you know, uh, flip a 
flip a switch or you know snap our fingers and suddenly have no fossil fuels. I think he is being pragmatic. He recognizes that many of his products are made by, for, and with uh, fossil fuels. And you know that doesn't that necessarily isn't a bad thing. If you look at the global standard, the lack of uh, you know uh, the, the the fact that uh, we don't see the kind of uh, problems that we saw 30, 40 years ago. Half the world's or a third of the world's population living in absolute abject poverty and starving. Uh, there are many things that fossil fuels has given us, and uh, you know I'm not one here to go out and talk about oil industry and their friends. I've never been a fan of theirs, and they're not a fan of mine. And there isn't a single person in Canada who did more to take on the oil industry than Dan McTague. And I can make that pre- statement fairly accurately because uh, uh, the record in the House of Commons is pretty clear. Uh, and I was on pretty much every dartboard of most major oil companies, and they'll admit that as well. But at the end of the day, I recognize that uh, it's a different thing to uh, be concerned about the way in which the market operates versus trying to destroy and throw the baby with the bathwater. The very thing, the very lifeline of our economy depends on the strength of our energy sector and our resources and getting it to market. And anybody who is ignoring that, I think, uh, falls in line with uh, what I think uh, Mr. Gates is suggesting. This thing is getting carried away. Uh, as more dirt uh, surfaces on the SNC-Lavalin case, will that will that see more sympathy for the Trans Mountain Pipeline project? Will that bring, especially, how how is that playing in the West? <laughs> well, I don't think it's going to change the uh, the dynamics uh, of either provincial or federal outcomes. I think uh, the po- folks over there have made up their mind. The uh, for the trendies on uh, you know Salt Spring Island, in BC, uh, of course uh, they don't want any pipeline, but for Albertans they definitely do and want. And uh, you know I doubt that the situation, the imbroglio, the the, the what is taking place now in terms of uh, the SNC Lavalin scandal um, or the Lav scandal, as many are referring to it as, only I think confirms for both sides that uh, you have a government that is uh, not able to uh, maintain its uh, its its credibility, its integrity, and the reasons why it took office. Uh, I think it's uh, for for people who aren't, you know, uh, aren't smitten, for people who aren't uh, into the, you know, who's most popular and uh, isn't into, you know, uh, uh, what, uh, you know, in, into um, the, the cult of personality. I think you'll find that uh, most people have made up their minds this government cannot survive another term because it's uh, likely to do damage to the nation beyond what we have and what we're experiencing today. So your guess is that this is on the back burner for the next 90 days, and then 90 days from now we'll hear about some sort of... Yeah, they'll, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll push yeah. it down the road. They want this past the election. That's always been their intentions. And uh, I've spoken to a good number of backbench liberals who are friends of mine who've pretty much indicated the same thing. Uh, those are the ones, of course, that haven't decided to resign before the election because there are a few more of those coming down the pipe. Interesting. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic, analyst, GasBuddy.com. The National Energy Board has approved the Trans Mountain Pipeline with some more conditions. Uh, Many say so. (laughs) Dan, thanks so much for the time. As always, have a great weekend. You too, Scott. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season 6 of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.